Hello, and welcome to the Joe Lowe episode of Slate Money Criminals. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. And we are joined from Singapore by Tom Wright. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. Tom, who are you and what brings you on this show? Well, I am a journalist. I was going to say retired <laughs> journalist, but you're always a journalist. Um, I'm, an, I'm the co-author of a book, Billion Dollar Whale, uh, about JOLO and the, the, one of the biggest frauds in history. And I'm the co-founder of Project Brazen, which is a, a podcast company. Uh, we make podcasts based on thrilling true stories. We are going to talk about JOLO in this episode. It's not easy to steal $6 billion, but he managed to do it. We're going to talk about how he managed to do it, whether it was a Ponzi scheme, who the victims were, who his accomplices were, and where it all stands today. That's all coming up on Slate Money Criminals. So who is this guy? Why was he worthy of turning into a book? And then I guess after that, you can bring us up to speed on what's happened over the past five years. Well, Joe Lowe is one of the largest, most successful white-collar criminals in history. He helped defraud at least $6 billion out of a state fund in Malaysia. And the proceeds went on a, a wide range of things, including making films like The Wolf of Wall Street, to pay Paris Hilton to hang out with him, to pay Leonardo DiCaprio to gamble with him, to invest in some bona fide businesses um, like EMI Music Publishing and hotels in, in Manhattan and all of this. Jolo carried this off by persuading the prime minister, then prime minister of Malaysia, Najib Razak, to allow him to sort of run this state fund from behind the scenes, this Malaysian state fund. And it's as simple as he just stole the money, really, with the connivance of bankers from Goldman Sachs and, you know, private bankers from Switzerland and all this, this cast of characters, which, which shows that, you know, money talks. So that, that's the sort of 10,000-foot view of Jolo. The fun thing about the, the Jolo scam is that um, with most of these scams, you have to sort of find a patsy, right? Like if you are, say, Bernie Madoff, you are constantly on the lookout for people to give you their money, and then you're going to steal that money and not give it back. In the case of Joe Lowe, it's a little bit different. What happened was he managed to persuade this thing called 1MDB, this, this um, official institution, to borrow $6 billion. Um, and that then became sovereign debt of Malaysia. And the people who bought those bonds, they continue to get paid back in full, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, where, that's where Goldman Sachs come in. Goldman Sachs helped Malaysia to raise the money. And I believe there was even some sovereign guarantees at some point from the Middle East, right? Yeah, and there was a, a Middle Eastern fund that backed some of the, the bonds as well, yeah. And, they, they, and the, the head of that Middle Eastern fund was also in on the whole scam. So what you have in this case is the victims, rather than being people who trusted Joe Lowe and like, you know, were, were won over by his smooth talking or anything like that, the victims were just 
the taxpayers of Malaysia, who for many, many years into the future are going to have to continue to service this debt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you rightly point out that this isn't really a pyramid scheme. Oh, no, in fact, it is not a pyramid scheme. You know, Bernie Madoff is a pyramid scheme. The last money in gets screwed. And, you know, some of the early investors did get did get paid off. And that, that you know, Bernie Madoff's fraud took 40 years. We have a podcast coming out next month about crypto, um, Sam Bankman-Fried and, and Changpeng Zhao. You can argue that, that that's also a pyramid scheme, right? You've got to get the mom and pop investors to invest in crypto to rip them off, to steal that customer money. Yeah, and in this case... Billions of dollars issued overnight in an environment when interest rate rates were very cheap after the global financial crisis. And, you know, the money just stolen with the connivance of, of big bankers. And, yeah, the, the victims are the people of Malaysia. We've read various headlines about Goldman Sachs settling for so many billions of dollars and whatnot. How, how much of the total stolen money has been recovered so far? Well, you know, the U.S. seized around a billion plus of assets. This is stuff like they actually seized the proceeds of the Wolf of Wall Street, uh, the, the hotels in New York and the, the mansions in Beverly Hills and all of this stuff. And that was a couple of billion. As you said, Goldman Sachs got fined uh, a, a lot of money. I think it was the largest ever fine under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the U.S. Um, Malaysia wants even more back. But, you know, of the total... The thing that's so shocking about this five years on, and we're going to get to where is Jolo, um, billions of it has not been recovered of the at least six billion that was stolen. And Jolo himself has has not been brought to justice yet. And so those are these uh, questions that haven't been answered, you know, five years after the book came out and a number of years after this all came out into the public eye. So where where do you think Jolo is? Well, we know where he is, actually. Um, so in, in whale hunting, our newsletter, uh, I have a company called Project Brazen that I co-founded with, with Bradley Hope, with whom I wrote the book, and we, we were colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. We have this newsletter called Whale Hunting, and we've actually been following uh, Jolo, and we have a YouTube series about where is Jolo as well. Um, he's in China, and he's been given, ever since he sort of went on the run, he's been indicted in the US and also in Malaysia, yeah, and just a quick aside, his protector, the prime minister, the former prime minister of Malaysia, Najib, is serving a 12-year jail sentence at the moment in Malaysia. So there has been some justice in the case. But Jolo is in China and he's protected by China. And the reasons for that are, are, are pretty complicated. But um, we should probably get into them. Yeah. What are, what are the reasons? And is he is he living a life of luxury on the billions that he stole from the Malaysian people? After it came out into the public via reporting in a newspaper called The Edge in Malaysia and on a blog called The Sarawak Report that he'd, he'd stolen billions of dollars. Najib Razak, who was still prime minister of Malaysia at the time, and this is 2015, tells Jolo, well, you better not be seen in public in Malaysia. And he goes to China. He's ethnically Chinese-Malaysian, so he goes to China. And he continues to do Najib's bidding. Najib is still prime minister at this time, not yet arrested and in jail. And he acts as a sort of unofficial government minister for Malaysia and does all these corrupt infrastructure deals between Malaysia and China. You've probably heard of the Belt and Road, the Chinese Infrastructure Initiative. It's much like the Marshall Plan in Europe after the, the Second World War. China, uh, China is building all this infrastructure across Asia and, and, and the Middle East and Africa. And they, they did these corrupt deals to build a corrupt railway in Malaysia that Jolo was involved in negotiating. And the idea was you pad these contracts and the money that you steal from these padded contracts you use to fill the hole of the original fraud, the 1MDB fraud. So Jolo was involved in all of this, um, 2016, 2017. And then um, Najib 
loses power in an election in Malaysia. Malaysia is incredibly corrupt, but it still does have, you know, electoral democracy. And Najib ends up getting arrested and going to jail for a 12-year sentence. So that's left Jolo hanging out there in China without the protection of a, of, a, of a head of state. And then all of the corrupt Chinese officials that were supporting Jolo in China, people who are taking you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars of payouts from Jolo, who still controls billions of dollars, those guys started to get arrested by Xi Jinping's government in China. That includes you know, the former head of state security in China, Sun Li Jun, was one of Jolo's protectors. Jolo is now under house arrest, we know, in China, and Malaysia is involved in these, the new Malaysian government, which was not the corrupt one that did all of this in the first place, and now involved in these negotiations with China to get Jolo back to face uh, justice. So one of the fascinating things about having large amounts of money is that it's not easy to have large amounts of money if it's stolen, right? The, you know, you can buy yourself a Basquiat painting, as, as Jolo did, and then people are like, oh, that's the Basquiat that Jolo bought, and it can get seized, and it can get um, sold, and as, as, as in fact happened. Um, you can try and open a bank account at your local bank, but then you come along to the bank the, your local bank and you say, hi, my name is Jolo. I'm an internationally wanted fugitive who stole billions of dollars. Can I please open up a bank account to put my billions of dollars in? And that's not going to end very well for you. So when you say that Jolo controlled billions of dollars, you know, up until pretty recently, was that in Chinese banks? Like, where was that money? That's a great question. Um, obviously, since this all came out in 2015, he's been unable to use the US dollar and the euro banking systems. He can't, you know, if, you, if Jolo tried to send in his own name a wire transfer via a US correspondent bank, it would get flagged because, you know, he's a, he's a risk. We know for sure he's been using cutouts, and those are friends, people that he uses to make payments. For example, he's been able to pay his lawyers for a long time in the US and, and in London via cutouts. There's a guy called uh, Feng Fian Laomongne, a Thai friend of his. Jo Jolo went to a, a very posh boarding school in the UK called Harrow. And uh, friends from there have acted as cutouts. This guy Feng Fian in Thailand has acted as a cutout. You know, they would, they would take bags of cash from Macau to Hong Kong and put it into Feng Fian's account, and then he would make payments. Uh, the bank ICBC, the Chinese uh, bank, has been used to make, make uh, round-tripping payments in Chinese yuan. So yeah, there's all kinds of ways. And you know, we, we don't have any evidence of this, but I'm sure he's using the crypto uh, world to move money around these days. Um, so yeah, there's, it's very hard to stop money laundering, and especially if you still have lots of it, right? Yeah, you mentioned before we started taping that you recently left Hong Kong for Singapore and that it was marginally Jolo-related. What, what happened there? For people who haven't followed this, you're probably wondering how we know half the things I'm saying. Well, it's all, it's all backed by reporting. And, and the reason we know that Jolo did all these corrupt Belt and Road infrastructure deals in China after 1MDB to try to fill the hole of 1MDB and was one of the reasons why he was protected there for so long um, is because we actually got minutes of a meeting that, the, that Jolo held with the Chinese ministers and that when the new government came to power in Malaysia, you know, that somebody there gave us these minutes from the, from the government archives. You know, the Chinese government don't take uh, minutes, as far as I know, of detailing the corruption they're about to do in Belt and Road, but Jolo was stupid enough to do that. And so we got hold of those, those minutes and in them they say, 
well, we're going to pad these contracts. We need to make them look commercial. This railroad in Malaysia, but you know, it won't be commercial, and we'll we'll take out the profits. And and also, Jolo in that meeting requested that um, the Chinese government bug my home in Hong Kong, where I was living at the time, um, because you know they wanted to f- figure out what we were doing because we were co- at the Wall Street Journal. We were covering the story very closely, um, and so. That was the reason that I actually decided to leave Hong Kong once the the crackdown started to happen there with, with the Chinese authorities, because I just, you know, having had that history and having reported names of Chinese officials who were still in power at that time and have since been arrested for corruption, but at that time felt pretty uncomfortable staying in, in Hong Kong. That, that is a wild story. It does remind me of that scene in The Wire where Stringer Bell is like, he, he turns on his, you know, Acolyte and says, "Are you taking minutes of a cons- of a criminal conspiracy? <laughs> like, what are you pretty doing? stupid? <laughs> pretty stupid. I mean, I mean, like people say until today, this is like one of the most documented stories of corruption in Belt and Road because normally, you know, Belt and Road, the New York Times did a great story from Sri Lanka. They'd look at the cost of the the bridge or the port or whatever it was, and uh, you know, you'd, you'd sort of infer that it was corrupt because of the cost. Whereas we actually got the document saying, yeah, let's do this at a <laughs> inflated price." And the idea was, I, I'm still kind of hung up on this, the idea was that somehow the kickbacks on the Belt and Road stuff would be so huge that he would end up paying back the $6 billion that he sold stole from 1MDB somehow? Well, that's that, that last part's my inference. I mean, the problem with Jolo was we could never figure out what the end game was, you know, because there were plenty of points where he could have stopped the fraud at a billion dollars and probably never got, got caught. Um, you know, there's this great scene in the book where he he's round tripping money to try to make it one one. He's trying to make one bit of money look like more, multiple bits of money by sending it around and back into the same account. And instead of stopping his big item purchasing at that time, he goes and buys a 250 million dollar yacht at the same time as he's trying to fool the bankers with that that round tripping. So, I mean, the guy. I think the guy just thought because. As you said at the beginning, this is, wasn't a Ponzi scheme, right? This was like steal, wholesale stealing of state-borrowed money. He thought he could always just write it off because Najib was the prime minister, so he could always just write off. You know, governments do that all the time. They write off hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. And I just think he thought it was, it was not real money, you know, and that he could just make it go away. You know, I've, I've never tried to steal billions from a sovereign before, but... One of the things that kind of strikes me is if if you were in his position, he did all of these things that were just very conspicuous. I mean, you're you're buying a Picasso for Leonardo DiCaprio and, you know, making these insane purchases. What do you think was his you know, state of mind when he was doing that? Did he just think that everybody else was too stupid to catch on to what he was doing? Because it seems like those things would have brought a lot more scrutiny for him. Well, when he, when he stole his first billion back in 2009, I just think all he wanted to do was party. He was a young guy. Um, he was obsessed with Paris Hilton. He would pay her lots of money to hang out with him. You know, he'd pay, he would give gambling chips to Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I don't think he didn't want to do much more than just party. Eventually, that turned into a film business, Red Granite Pictures, which made The Wolf of Wall Street with stolen funds. And Jolo, you know, told DiCaprio and Scorsese that he'd fund their next four movies at $100 million each. So that was like the holy grail for those guys to not have to be dependent on studios. And they would, they would, they could have these four movies. They were going to make um, The Irishman, which eventually they didn't because Jolo got arrested and it, it went, they, they financed it elsewhere. 
But then, then later on, he did sort of try to buy some real businesses. You know, he bought EMI Music Publishing. He bought some hotels that actually did pretty well. Um, EMI Music Publishing did pretty well because it was just before the streaming uh, revolution. So yeah, she was, you know, not a bad businessman in some ways, but yeah, the, but he carried on stealing. The thing all of this has in common is, is just high glamour, right? If you have billions of dollars and, you know, the first thing you want to do is just go out and party and fill an aircraft hangar with like a bunch of celebrities and feel special and buy people champagne and that's all well and good. And then eventually you, you realize, you know, there's that famous sort of Graydon Carter seven doors speech that there were like, more doors you can be you can become bigger and more influential you know as a film producer in hollywood that's always like the big glamorous thing that people want to do when they become rich um and then once you've become the film producer in hollywood you realize there's even other you know where where what do all the film producers in hollywood want they they you know they aspire to owning these glamorous hotels or to owning a record label you know or you know something like that and so it just it becomes increasingly like rarefied and aspirational. But what he's not doing is going out and buying like a widget manufacturer in Wichita. You know, he's going out and becoming increasingly influential at like a, at a higher and higher level rather than just hanging out on in the gossip pages. Pretty soon he's like owning the hotels that all of the film producers are staying in. Yeah, and he, and he ends up um, dating Miranda Kerr, the Australian supermodel, right, which is a sort of apex of that for him, hanging out at Super Bowls, hanging out with um, Alicia Keys and her husband, Swiss Beats, recording songs in their studios. They, they, you know, he, he paid, you know, people to record albums for his girlfriends and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's a lifestyle. But, yeah, what he spent very little time doing was thinking about the how the fraud would be sustainable beyond let's keep stealing Malaysian state money, right? And, you know, they, they, they stole that first billion, then they got Goldman Sachs to raise billions more, which they then stole and just kept on doing it right up until the end. So is it actually incredibly easy to buy a bunch of celebrity friends? But yeah, that's easy. I think what Jolo did is incredibly <laughs> difficult, right? Like the whole, you know, like the, 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 there's a theory that it, that, you know, it was a family affair, the dad, his dad, he, he grew up on this island of Penang in Malaysia, went to this Harrow School in, in, in England. Um, you know, there's this idea that it was all, the plans for this were laid long ago. Send him to a posh school, get to know rich people, get to know the Prime Minister of Malaysia's family, worm your way in, do some brokering deals for them early in your career, and then finally get him to let you run a sovereign wealth fund. But, you know, I'm, I'm condensing it there, but it's very difficult to get someone to let you run a sovereign wealth fund from behind the scenes <laughs> when, you're, when you're in your late 20s. So that, that you know, that he's a skillful guy, you know. Um, but also a little bit of a cipher. Tell me a little bit about that skill, because we, we've heard about John Acker Blamiza, who was like famously charming and had this great memory for individuals and people's like personalities and foibles. Um, we've heard about Bernie Madoff, who was very good at cultivating a sort of mystique and trying to, you know, be very quietly making people come to him to beg to be part of his fund. What was Jolo's technique here? What was it that allowed him to do these things that for you and I would be completely impossible? So he started off by describing himself as a concierge service when he was very young and still in college and he, you know, he, he brokered these deals. What he figured out was there was a lot of money in the Middle East and 
Malaysia could get some of that money and, you know, he'd be a broker between that. And, and he worked on a big property project in southern Malaysia and he would take a, you know, a cut. And that kind of broker role is quite quite common in, in emerging markets, especially in Asia. Um, but yeah, he was very obsequious. You know, he, he would say, I'm the bag man, basically acting like a bag man. I'm the guy who um, buys everyone the drinks. I'm the guy that rents the, the night at the at the nightclub avenue or marquee nightclubs in New York City and all that kind of stuff. That was how he started off. Um, and so people who, you know, and it was a front, right? Because he was the one stealing the money, but he acted like he was very much like always acting for someone else because Najib, the prime minister of Malaysia was his patron. Najib's son was the was involved in the film company that made The Wolf of Wall Street. So he always acted like he was sort of what he called the concierge service to rich people. And that was how he, that sort of was his disguise in a way, right? He hid behind that. Um, and very, But if you ask people about him and why I said he's a bit of a cipher is people would say, oh, he was pretty shy, nice guy. But it wasn't like he was somebody who really charming nature that you just referred to for some of those other fraudsters. It does remind me a bit of Jeffrey Epstein, you know, who also referred to himself as a concierge to rich people and and who also, by all accounts, was not particularly charming. The people would meet him and they'd be like, ooh, he was a bit icky. But somehow he managed to continue his, you know, whatever it was that he did for, for many, many years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, J- Jola was very good at figuring out, like, how he could be useful to people, right? Like, what did they need? So in the case of um, DiCaprio and, and Scorsese, it was, what, film financing. So I'll get, I'll get that for you. In the case of Najib, the former prime minister of Malaysia, he needed a bunch of money to be able to do two things, get reelected in Malaysia, where he needed tons of cash to pay off voters. And he had a wife called Rosma Mansour, who was like the, you know, Marie Antoinette or Imelda Marcos. Um, she's also uh, been found guilty and is appealing in Malaysia for money laundering and corruption. When they raided their apartments in KL after all this came out, they found quarter of a billion dollars in, of loose items in there. You know, watches, handbags, Birkin handbags, um, this kind of stuff, which makes Melda Marcos's thousands of pairs of shoes, like, you know, pale into insignificance compared to it. So he, Jolo got very close to her and figured out what she needed, right? Which was L- Lorraine Schwartz jewelry. And, you know, he would fly <laughs> Lorraine Schwartz in from New York to to the a boat in the Mediterranean to meet Rosamund Mansour, where she could pick out her $20 million pink diamond or whatever it was, you know? So that that's, that's the kind of role he played. And, but he needed her. It's quite obvious why he needed her, um, or at least her husband. Um, he didn't really need Scorsese and DiCaprio, right? They didn't do much for him except for sort of, you know, make him feel important. That's the fun part. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, the fun part. Right. Yeah, you know, he, he became very close to Swiss Beats, Alicia Keys' husband. Swiss Beats got paid a lot of money by Jolo for, to, to MC events and stuff like that. And we know for sure that even after this came out and Jolo was on the run and still partying in Bangkok, that Swiss Beats was still turning up at his parties and, <laughs> and, and hanging out with him. So, you know, um, people but one didn't of, really one of the um, one of the Fugees got into trouble. Oh, yeah. So this is very confusing. The um, Pras Michel has been found guilty earlier this year of uh, illegal campaign financing and illegal lobbying on behalf of Jolo. So when Jolo was in trouble and he was in China, Najib was still in power, Jolo used Pras Michel to funnel money to try to bribe a Department of Justice employee called George Higginsbottom to get Trump to drop the probe into Jolo and in, in, was unsuccessful. But Pras was promised, according to the court verdict, um, over $100 million if he was able to get Trump to drop the case into Jolo. Um, I think he's appealing now and hasn't been sentenced yet. So that... 
that's how Pras Michel is involved in all of this. And, there, you know, there was a crazy meeting in Shenzhen across the border from Hong Kong with Pras Michel, um, Elliot Broidy, who was one of these sort of Trump-era swamp creatures and uh, who got pardoned on Trump's last day in office, and Jolo and all these corrupt Chinese officials trying to work out how they were going to do a bunch of things, including, you know, get Jolo's case dropped and get this guy Guo Wenggui, who the Chinese want back in China, sent back from New York and all of that, who's Steve Bannon's friend. So it's, it's so complicated, but it's, a, it's this world of like lobbying and, and big money payouts that Jolo was using to try to, try to sort of get himself out of legal jeopardy. Elliot Broidy was, was the guy who came out at some point and claimed to have accidentally got some like penthouse model pregnant or something. That's right. That's right. And and like he's like, oh, it was all me, and so I I paid her off, and no one really believed him. Yeah, and he was and he was pardoned in that list of people that were pardoned by Trump at the end of his presidency. But yeah, we saw the documents where Broidy and his wife were, were negotiating, you know, to get paid to help, you know, make the legal case go away. It didn't happen. Jolo got indicted. Trump didn't Trump didn't do anything didn't get involved as far as we know. And yeah, so Jolo has these two cases against him in, in well, I think more, I think, I think in Kuwait as well, but also in Malaysia and in the US. And the latest information now is that the new Malaysian government that um, is, has, was not involved in this is trying to get China uh, to send Jolo back to face trial in Malaysia. And the Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim traveled to Beijing in March of this year and you know, our sources tell us that there's an ongoing negotiation now to get Jolo sent back, which is very delicate because obviously he was involved in all this Chinese Belt and Road corruption, um, which they, the Chinese don't want coming out into the open. Um, but, you know, from what we understand, the Malaysians feel confident that they're going to get him back to, to face trial in Malaysia. Let me ask you just quickly about how... Um like the Goldman Sachs angle here, because this is this is the bit that is fun for those of us who consider ourselves, you know, squidologists. Two Goldman bankers, Roger Eng and Tim Leisner, were indicted. Goldman was very quick institutionally to throw those two under the bus. But when Goldman settled with the Americans, not yet with the Malaysians, they did wind up clawing back a bunch of bonuses from people like Gary Cohn, right? Yeah, they clawed back bonuses from Lloyd Blankfein, Gary Cohen, who was, they were all involved in this. But yeah, they, they, so Goldman pleaded guilty only at the Malaysian unit level, not at the, not at the overall bank level. So that's how you know, they were able to void that. It has all kind, would have had all kinds of consequences for the bank to plead guilty to FSPCA, Foreign Corrupt Practice Act, FCPA violations. Um, so there are yeah, two bankers have, have sort of gotten caught up in this. Roger Ung was a managing director and his boss was Tim Leisner, a German who was the partner out in Singapore and Hong Kong when all this went down. Uh, Roger Ung pleaded not guilty and Tim Leisner pleaded guilty. Roger Ung was found guilty and is appealing. Um, I think he was given 10 years in jail. Um, and Leisner has yet to be sentenced. Um, he was recently spotted during the Milken conference in LA having dinner in a, in a fine dining restaurant in Beverly Hills, <laughs> which, was ama- which was amazing to me. But he's, yeah, I mean, I think he's privately been telling people that he's, he, he expects to do five years in jail. And which, is, which is roughly what Mike Milken did. Is it? Oh, I think. And it would be the first. Do you f- remember how, how long Milken spent in jail? Uh, that sounds about right. I don't remember exactly. 
maybe once he gets out of prison, he can try and rehabilitate himself in much the same way that Mike Milken is attempting to with his Milken conference. Exactly, exactly. And he, well, he's um, in a world of trouble, you know, because he's admitted to helping move $200 million um, through his private accounts. He will be the first Goldman partner, I think, to go to jail in Goldman's history. So Goldman was hoping to draw a line under all of this with paying that huge fine to the American government um, a couple of years ago. But the story just, like these big frauds, you know, white-collar frauds, they just take years and years and years to work their way through the court systems. And yeah, so we hear is that Tim Leisner is supposed to be sentenced in September, yeah, next month. But that keeps getting delayed, and so not so sure. Uh, just FYI, uh, Milken served 22 months and was pardoned by Trump in 2020. <laughs> he was pardoned by Trump, by the way, many, many years after he was released from prison. But yeah, the, the, the Milken pardon was one of the great moments of Trumpism. It's just sort of saying, oh, yeah, this guy seems, seems perfectly good to me. No idea what the problem was. <laughs> yeah, same time as Elliot Broidy was, was uh, pardoned in that same, that same list. <laughs> But yeah, and no. So the Milken a, conference is great that way. You know, it's it's famous for being the one conference where like Leon Black is happy to hang out in public and be totally open about you know no no shame. Yeah, well, like maybe that's why Tim Leisner was. I, I'm not actually sure Tim Leisner went to the Milken conference when it was in LA earlier this year, but he was definitely hanging with government Malaysian government folk on the sidelines of it in in posh restaurants. So as as with all conferences, the only important stuff happens on the sidelines. Nothing important ever happens on stage. Exactly. You just hang out at the, you know, Peninsula Hotel in one of the cabanas on the rooftop and you take your meetings. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, these are the, these are the you know, five years on or seven years on since the case first broke. These are the, you know, last few things left to be finalized, I guess. And, and so your expectation is that after long and involved negotiations between the Malaysian government and the Chinese government, the Chinese government is going to realize that they have no particular interest in protecting Jolo from Malaysia anymore. And so they will give him up and then he will finally face trial in Malaysia. Yes, that's our understanding. I mean, the Malaysians think that that's what the Chinese are agreeing to. It's been a long process of negotiations, but yeah. And the fact that China has arrested Sun Li Jun, who was one of Jolo's big protectors, uh, the former head of uh, domestic security. And then, you know, another minister uh, was recently arrested for corruption. They, they never mention in the Chinese press or in the Chinese announcements of this stuff that this is because of Jolo or anything like that. But, you know, that's my inference from the fact that these guys were some of his, you know, closest protectors in China. So very few people managed to get swept into Jolo's orbit without paying some kind of a price. I guess Martin Scorsese. <laughs> well, you know, Scorsese was given like a, Jolo gave him a like 70th birthday gift of a, I think he got a like a Polish movie poster of Cabaret. Was that what he gave him? And he gave DiCaprio Marlon Brando's Oscar from uh, On the Waterfront, which uh, DiCaprio gave back because you're not supposed to sell an Oscar statue anyway. It's like, I think it's it contravenes the Academy rules. So, you know, it's embarrassing, embarrassing, but no, nobody's saying that Scorsese or DiCaprio did anything, or especially Scorsese, but no one's saying DiCaprio did anything illegal. You know, he was given all these gifts and he gave them back. He was given up, I think he was given a Picasso painting and, a, you, know, fam- you know, expensive photography and all this kind of stuff. But... DiCaprio got what the New Yorker recently called his greatest ever performance out of Cholo's money. Yeah, yeah. 
and it was going so to that's, be... So that's something, I suppose. Like, the Malaysian people got st- got robbed of $6 billion, but at least a guy acted well on film, right? Like, you know, exactly. weigh him out. In a, in a, yeah, in a, very, in, a very, in a film about a fraudster who, you know... The, 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 my favourite part of the book is still where Jordan Belfort says he met Jolo um, during the sort of beginnings of the, the making of The Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, these guys had just bought Jordan Belfort's memoir. And he says, I knew that guy was a fraudster. <laughs> <laughs> the takes one to know one. Takes one to takes know one. one. To know. But yeah, how, so but I mean, obviously, the Malaysians knew that he was a fraudster. Um, but pretty obviously, also like the um, the Kuwaitis did not, right? Like because they were just guaranteeing these, or or did they know too? Uh, not the Kuwaitis, the Emiratis. Yeah. Oh, the Emiratis. Sorry. Well, they did. No, they did. I mean, you know, Kadim Al Kabesi, who was the head of um, the, the IPIC sovereign wealth fund that was involved in this fraud you know he's he's in jail now in the uae so yeah i mean it took it took some very senior people to make this fraud work because you know you had the prime minister of malaysia on one side you had then jolo running this sovereign wealth fund on the malaysian side and they would do deals with these funds in the middle east and you know those guys were also run by corrupt people so that's why when they went to banks and said hey can you let this multi hundreds of millions of dollar transfer through they said okay you know it's because you know, this was governments on both sides of the transaction. No one bothered to do proper due diligence. So that was like basically how the fraud worked. One of my slogans that I came up with a few years ago, and I have now, because I'm old and boring, just like fall back on it instead of doing any hard thinking, is um, it's easier to turn power into money than it is to turn money into power. And this seems to me to be a really prime example of that that what Jolo did was he found the most powerful people that he could find, and he took that power and he turned it into $6 billion. And there are lots of people with $6 billion in the world who do not have the power of, you know, the Malaysian prime minister. They don't run entire... They can't provide sovereign guarantees or, like, issue sovereign bonds. But if you can do that, then stealing billions of dollars is actually relatively easy. Yeah. And he did and he, you know, he did it in two places. The the two key countries for this was Malaysia and the United Arab Emirates, both of which have rule of law problems, right? So you know, Malaysia obviously, you know, the, he was able to totally subvert a government and, you know, it ended up with Najib even selling the country out to China and through corrupt deals and opening even considering opening up their ports to the Chinese armed to Chinese Navy. So you know, that was on the Malaysia side. And then on the UAE side, you know, he, he was able to do deals with the current UAE ambassador to Washington, right? This guy, Otaiba, who's Yusuf Al-Otaiba, who's still there, still is the UAE ambassador to Washington and was very close to Jared Kushner and others. So, you know, there are these countries where it's quite easy to get the, the, the powerful people in those countries to uh, interact with you, you know, in a way that I hope it wouldn't, you know, it's not as if any country is clean, but, you know, there are some countries where that would be more difficult. Jolo, Jolo identified the ones where you could do it. I, I'm also rem- reminded, like, since Goldman Sachs is so central to this whole story, of the, the, the Ten Commandments of Goldman Sachs that were promulgated by a famous chairman of Goldman Sachs many decades ago. The first one is, important people like to deal with other important people. Are you one? 
And you can kind of see how you can see how the, the trickle down from that commandment to what Tim Leisner did, right? Tim Leisner felt like that in order to fully inhabit his role as a partner of Goldman Sachs, he needed to become an important person in Malaysia and Singapore and places like that. And he started acting like one and he actually kind of became one. And what important people do in those countries, as we have now learned, is steal money. I mean, Lloyd Blankfein said to a meeting of, of Goldman partners, senior and senior management, be more like Tim at some point when he when, when Lloyd Blankfein was CEO of, uh, of, of Goldman, because he was rainmaking, right? He was a, he was a deal-making partner. He was going around these Southeast Asian capitals, Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, and getting big deals for the company. And, and you know, the other thing about this is if you if you are a partner for somebody like Goldman in a small market like Malaysia or Southeast Asia in general, it's very hard to make those those big deals, right? Like you're not doing tech deals on the West Coast or the, those big China mergers, whatever it is. And so, you know, doing these kind of deals, which you know. Leisner ended up getting very corrupt and getting involved just as Jolo did with, with Prime Minister of Malaysia and all this kind of stuff. That, that was the way to do it, you know? On which note, I think we will wrap this up. Tom, thanks so much for coming on. This has been illuminating. We're so happy to have you back. We, we had you when the book came out and um, you will come back, I'm sure, when, when um, Jolo is finally sentenced and, and the massive trial takes place in Malaysia. Well, that and also, like I said, we've got this podcast coming out about uh, CZ of Binance and Sam Bankman-Fried and their relationship. So that's just a, just another another uh, another story. <laughs> we Yeah, that, that one we will definitely, definitely um, cover. So yeah, Tom, thank you very much for coming on. Um, thanks to Patrick Fort for producing and we will be back with a regular Slate Money on Saturday. 